I went into Hill 1696, so 1696 meters um, elevation, so, so close to 6,000 feet. Um, it was a point that of high ground that I could dominate, make communications, as you said, um, really call for fire in the pro proximate location of Sergeant Fritchie, what, what his last uh, known location was. We'll risk an awful lot to recover an American. We did risk him, we recovered him. So, you know, over three decades of service, I believe this was the most honorable mission that, I, that I've been on. Hey, welcome back to The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and in this episode, MWI's Major Jake Moraldi talks to Colonel Bill Osland. Recording this podcast was actually one of the last things Colonel Osland did before retiring from the Army recently and bringing to a close a career that spanned more than 35 years. That career earned him a wealth of experience, and as such, regular listeners to The Spear will remember him from two previous episodes. But in this episode, he talks through what he describes as the most honorable mission he ever took part in. In 2007, Colonel Austin was deployed in Afghanistan and in command of 2nd Battalion 503rd Infantry Regiment in the 173rd Airborne Brigade. In late July of that year, he got word that a soldier in an adjacent unit was reported missing after a firefight with enemy forces. He volunteered to put together a force from his unit to recover the missing soldier. Knowing that if you're killed on the battlefield, your fellow soldiers will stop at nothing to get to you and bring you home is, as Colonel Austin describes, an incredibly vital part of the Army's ethos. The story you're about to hear is an example of that ethos in action. Before we get to it though, just a couple notes. First, if you're not yet subscribed to The Spear, you can do so on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please consider taking just a moment and giving it a rating or leaving a review. Second, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, here's Major Jake Moraldi and Colonel Bill Ostland. Sir, thank you for taking the time to sit down and, and talk to us. I'm excited to, to hear this story about the, the Fritchie recovery. Well, Jake, th thanks for having me. You know, I'm a big fan of uh, MWI and having the opportunity to share these stories um, that you continue to produce and provide for current and uh, in future generations. So thanks for what you and MWI are doing. Well, I want to start off for people who aren't necessarily familiar um, with you or, or this particular story and just kind of get the background. So we're in Afghanistan. Can you kind of tell me where we are, what the situation is um, as a preface for the mission we're going to discuss today? Yeah, Jake, um, at this point in time, I was the commander for 2nd Battalion, 503rd um, in the 173rd Airborne Brigade. Uh, we'd been in country approximately two months. Um, we were located, the battalion headquarters was located at Camp Blessing in uh, Kunar Province. We were responsible for the vast majority of Kunar in, in a, the southern portion of Nuristan Province. Um, by this time, um, the end of July 2007, um, again, we'd been there about two months. We'd been in about 130 um, engagements with the enemy um, by this time. And uh, we'd had, I think, uh, four, had had four KIAs by this time, fortunately, and 24 wounded. So we were 
fairly practiced at um, bringing in fires, bringing in medevac, fighting in, the, in this terrain mm -hmm. at that time. Good. So you've been here for a while. There's a lot of experience in the battalion. There had also been a lot of sort of, of hardship in this deployment aside from just the day-to-day contacts. Can you sort of illuminate what some of those things were either before, right before you guys got there and, and during your deployment? Yeah, the, by, by this time um, we're settling into kind of our new normal. Um, we had a, a phenomenal transition with 132 Infantry, um, 3rd Brigade, 10th Mountain. They were actually pushed up um, into Kunar Nuristan area to basically set the footprint for us. Very little resources, um, very little time. This is an organization that had had a hard fight for over a year. They were extended for four months. Um, and this unit fought, not only fought through their last day, but they aggressively sought to set the best footprint for us. Um, our transition, uh, you know, I got to sing his praises now, Lieutenant General, but then uh, Lieutenant Colonel Chris Cavoli um, brought us in there. Uh, phenomenal uh, coin understanding at his level, but a phenomenal fighter as well. So we had about as great a handoff as we could have. And then, as, as you well know in these deployments, you know, that first 60 days you're trying to gain understanding um, so that you can best apply the training and the knowledge you have. So we're going to talk today about a very specific and difficult mission set um, that happened sort of in extremis and was out of sector and, and all the things that you as a commander or you as a leader in an army formation kind of view as like a worst case scenario. Um, so I'm curious what the, what the basic background of that was and, and then we can get into the actual experience of preparing and, and executing that mission. So what, what's the background of, of how this mission happened? Yeah, so the mission that we're talking about is, is a fallen hero recovery. Um, really had a twist. It, it was actually, a, 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 the, the person was outside of our control, meaning he was on the battlefield, had not been recovered, um, I knew our brigade did not have a reserve, and we did not have a reserve at the battalion level, but at battalion level we had tasked people to be prepared to do a number of missions. And I was confident that I could get a battalion TAC, two company CPs, and four platoons into position faster than we could generate aircraft to move that large of a package. So on the 27th of, of um, July, 2007, I was out with my TAC, received word that uh, there was a tick in um, our sister squadron's area in Nuristan, and they had a number of casualties. And I called back to my, my talk and said, well, let Brigade know, and this was within about 62 minutes, I think, let, that I said, let the brigade know that we can put a comp attack, a company CP, two platoons into PZ posture um, within an hour and, and start formulating that. And it was kind of, it, it was fairly routine for us to be able to do that. Um, the company commander, the first company commander would always be Captain Matt Meyer, um, currently the commander of 1st Battalion 501st, who many of us know was recently the Ninninger awardee here at West Point and uh, 
approximately a year later was uh, the commander at the Battle of Wanat, um, where he, um, it's been documented fairly well. So uh, on that day, um, brigade called back to us, thanks, We're, we, we acknowledge, you got the force, we think uh, the squadron can handle it, um, and we continued to do our, our daily business and continued to monitor, chat, and every, everything else. Um, approximately 24 hours later, um, we got called and, and told that you, you've got to move the package. You've got to move a package in, um, start, start looking at this. And we'd been monitoring, um, not getting in their business, but monitoring. So we had a pretty good idea of what we needed. Um, I asked Brigade for um, an HLZ to put my tack in. I, uh, the parameters I asked that I need to be within about three kilometers of his last known location so I can call for fires, overlook that, help C2, um, and have some command and control. Don't basically own the high ground, get inserted on that. A lot of effort was put into finding an HLZ there, and I got the word that, you know, there is nothing that we can put you in there. Um, so we continued to plan. We knew that um, that chosen company, Matt Meyer, in two platoons, um, able 2-6, in chosen 2-6, were gonna fly right into Camu, and uh, we were gonna go into Naray and then on to uh, attack location at some point in time. So throughout the discussions, we started moving forces um, and uh, and I got linked up with a CW4 Walton, Chief Walton. said, look, I fly this area all the time. I can put you in on Hill 1696. I'm the only pilot that can get you on there. Um, it's a very thin ridge line, um, but I can get you in there. But it's going to be about 10 minutes per lift, um, one lift at a time. Well, Intel set showed that there were three rings of Taliban positions dug into that hill. Um, so... Again, we have a missing American, resources are flowing, so we had a B-1 coming in. Um, we were going to drop uh, six GBU-31s on the hill, um, clear that, see what, what's, what's left, and then, um, and then insert. Well, as, as Murphy takes a toll, the B-1 hit headwinds coming in, um, and in order to be able to do the bomb drop, they'd have to refuel. If they refueled, then we couldn't insert at night. So the risk calculus was, do we go without dropping GBU-31s, 2,000-pound bombs on the hill um, and, and insert at night, or do we wait, um, drop the GBU-31s, um, also leave, and the person we're looking for is Staff Sergeant William Fritchie, do we leave Sergeant Fritchie on the battlefield? Um, what we opted to do instead of uh, 12,000 pounds of munition is we uh, had the AC-130 shoot one 105 round at a, at a little tree on the suspected uh, HLZ and look for movement. So we got 37 pounds of ordnance instead, and there was fortunately no movement on there. So we uh, inserted in um, with Chief Walton in the lead, and... Uh, I was on the first aircraft going in, and um, my sergeant major, who I wish would have went on another one, um, but was adamant about coming in with me on the same one. And I say I wish he would have went on another one because I wasn't exactly sure how this was going to work out for us. And um, we got to the ridge line. I st stepped out of the helicopter onto the ridge line, but the helicopter had slipped, 
and myself, my RTO, and my JTAC fell um, 40 to 60 feet, um, really face first into some boulders and stuff on a little ledge. Um, and our JTAC was actually injured enough that he was then medevac from um, from country. Uh, we recovered from that fall, got up on the ridge line, a um, little bit banged up, um, but we're very glad we weren't in contact with the enemy. Um, subsequently, the uh, and by the way, the sergeant major was very uh, much smarter, much more experienced. I guess uh, set, he, he waited till he could set his rucksack on the ground, and then he stepped out of the helicopter instead of uh, um, hoping for the best after he saw me fall out. And uh, just heck, heck, great, great Sergeant Major. And um, Sergeant Major Myers. And then we uh, set up our perimeter. We're in the overwatch with um, Bravo 2-6 platoon um, up there with us. So I think it's important to highlight, and, and we were talking about this beforehand, we have a lot of, of N2KL, Kunar, Nurisan stories that we do on, on the podcast, but just for people who, who haven't heard it before, I think it's important to highlight some of the difficulties with the, the terrain and sort of the force architecture that we're dealing with in, in the area that um, Steph Sergeant Fritchie, the search is happening for this um, in terms of Big mountains, we obviously only have sort of the one HLZ with very limited ability to access it. Um, communication is a nightmare because of how rugged the terrain is. Um, fires are not necessarily very responsive just because there are not a lot of fires within the area. And I'm curious what your assessment going into that based on all these complications was. Obviously the HLZ is what it is. Um, but there's all these other considerations as well that, that I'm curious about what your thoughts were kind of coming in to this mission. Yeah, co coming into uh, an, another unit's area um, in conversations, and, and that's, I must say that squadron commander was, was visiting, occupying, fixed on another OP. Um, so he was somewhat out of position from his, um, from his, squadron um, headquarters and his field grades were doing the best they could managing this situation. Um, if we back up to the 27th of July um, when um, Sergeant Fritchie was killed, the troop commander was also killed, Tom Bostick. Um, and uh, I'd known Tom when he was a staff sergeant in the Rangers. Um, he had adamantly tried to get him into the Rock as a, as a company commander. He was just a phenomenal personality, warrior leader. Um, and as we noted in the press here in the last uh, couple of weeks, is his silver star for that battle is going to be upgraded to DSC, which we're, we're very, very happy about. Um, all that said, um, the train in that area, um, for a visual depiction, I think the movie The Lone um, Survivor does a great job at, at capturing what that train is like if people are interested in looking at it, but it, it's, it's very rugged. Um, the roads primarily go through the valley floors and snake up the mountains. Um, I, I went into Hill 1696, so 1696 meters um, elevation, so, so close to 6,000 feet, and I had high ground all around me. Um, but it was a point that of high ground that I could dominate, make communications, as you said, um, really call for fire in the pro proximate location of 
Sergeant Fritchie, what, what his last uh, known location was. And um, when we say his last known location, the unit, the troop, had a, had a very very good grid coordinate to, to where he was at and just could not um, fight to him. And uh, they had taken 11 wounded, I think, and as I mentioned, two, two KIAs in this fight um, and uh, could not get to him. So that, that terrain, um, again, is, is, is very um, complex, but it's complex for everybody. It's complex for the enemy, too, um, and we seek ways to maximize our advantages in that terrain. And I think people that look at the terrain and, and um, weather or any environmental condition, any condition, and think that, well, we're at a disadvantage, I mean, that's a, that's a mentality, then we got to turn that around. And those of us that have fought in that area know that in short order, we, we know how to turn that disadvantage into a disadvantage for the enemy as well. So. So you're able to get your tack on ground and start kind of getting a good appraisal of, of the situation and, and the terrain and, and everything going on there. So what are the first sort of steps once the tack is established? What are, you, what are you doing to continue the mission forward? I'm assuming that um, Matt Meyer and his two platoons are on the ground already as well. Right. Um, so what is the sort of thought process about how we're going to prosecute this thing? Yeah, we, we knew um, going in that um, Matt Meyer and, and his element, uh, his first sergeant, those two platoons, were, and a JTAC were going to get into Camus, get postured, get an intel update, and there was a NCO, I think Sergeant Wilson, who was um, from 2503 up there, knew the first sergeant. They had a good conversation. I think he went outside the uh, wire for a search uh, for Sergeant uh, Fritchie to guide them in. And so the mentality was get them in position, let them get set, as, and then as we're inserting, um, they'll, they'll step off. And um, my memory serves me right. Matt began his road march even before we were completely closed in with the tack. Um, and what he was doing, again, is he did his risk calculus, risk assessment, and he wanted to get moving before first light. And he had an AC-130 over top of him as long as it was dark, and we had agreed when he hit the ground, he had conditions set. He needed to move out under the cover of that AC-130, which at that point in, our, in the war would turn into a pumpkin before, before daylight. So um, he, he started that movement. It was about a four-kilometer movement to the grid coordinate um, of Sergeant Fritchie's last known location. We were inserted, we overwatched, um, and we began calling fire on some um, known, likely, and suspected um, positions there. And I will say, you, you talked about the complexity of the area. You know, a couple of things that I asked from and got, got from Brigade was the HLZ needed to oversee it, but the other thing, I said, I, I needed my own AO, and we carved out AO Rock 2, um, called it AO Little Rock, whatever. Um, and I said that because I did not want to have to go through uh, some other headquarters, um, certainly with the battalion commander out of position, or the squadron commander out of position, did not want to go through someone else to call for fire. So I was very liberal in this area um, with fires. We know, you know, it was an enemy controlled area, um, a large force in this area, and we were able to uh, use fires fairly, very effectively in that time. 
So what's the assessment as you're getting on the ground, as Matt's moving, of the threat? You said, you know, we're going to put, we put AC-130 uh, AC fire on HLZ and there wasn't any movement. We're able to get in. What did the threat look like as the situation sort of developed? As is the case there, we, we received continuous ICOM chatter. Um, the assessment was and kind of the, the uh, after action um, showed that there was a large force in the, or in the area. Uh, Bulldog Troop believed and reported that they were in contact with approximately 100 fighters. Um, the description of these people, they, they were very well equipped, um, perhaps IMUs sort of folks in the area, um, me meaning that they had a, a you know, uniform kit, um, uniforms dressed in black, um, had good communications. So the assessment was there was a large force in the area, um, but as we know, they're also patient in that area in attempt to set the conditions. When we brought in um, not over, not only a comparatively large force, but um, had that spread out, had multiple aircraft in the area um, that uh, they they were they were identifying where we were at, but they were unable to engage or unwilling to engage us, and I think they were trying to figure out what the heck we were doing. And it's interesting. Um, I mean, they they had gotten to Sergeant Fritchie. They, uh, you know, stripped off his equipment, his boots, his vest, his weapon. Um, and, uh, and, and fortunately left him where he was at, or his last known location. Um, but they did, they, they left that area. They left that immediate area um, instead of, setting up an ambush or, or anything um, of, of that nature. Because when Matt walked right to the area within, you know, literally minutes of getting into that area, they located Sergeant Fritchie and then they um, kind of did SSE of an expanded area and found some of his equipment. I think Tom Bostick's ID card and some other um, equipment from Tom. And, um, uh, but again, they were in the area, but, but um, did not, come out to fight that day. And again, Bulldog Troop had great effects on, on them as well. So, All right, so as, as Captain Myers, as, as Matt gets there and is doing that, the site exploitation and, and policing up everything that they can, um, what sort of, in your mind, what are sort of the next steps that you're foreseeing as managing the TAC and managing this, this AO? Um, what are the next things that need to happen in your mind? So um, Matt, Matt called for um, the troop to send a platoon forward of up-armored Humvees to um, extricate Sergeant Fritchie, and some coordination was going on there um, at Matt's level and at my TAC level, and, and we got them to the right location to do that. But I'm, I'm immediately mission, in my mind, um, not complete but accomplished. We found, recovered um, Sergeant Fritchie, and... You know, this conversation started a while ago when I said, you know, kind of in reflection on over three decades of service, I believe this was the most honorable mission that, I, that I've been on. And it's one that um, not as exciting um, as some in the sense of kinetic activity and on our part, but just the, the absolute um, commitment of everybody to go into the recovery not leave until we had found Sergeant Fritchie having a, a very early success. Then it becomes 
Okay, force protection still, right, will risk an awful lot to recover an American. We did risk him, we recovered him. So now how do we extricate our force without um, getting more people injured? Or if the enemy comes out, how do we eliminate them and then extricate our force with, with uh, min minimum damage to, to our force? Because I've got another AO that I'm really responsible for and I need to get back there as, as soon as possible. So um, through coordination with the brigade, you know, with, um, with crew rest and, and people flying through um, for really two or three days up in that area, we were not going to get extracted until the crews could be reset, which everybody understands. So we were on the ground, although we found him very early in the morning, uh, we were on the ground throughout the day and then started ext extracting late that night. Um, and um, so we got back to, to an array. Um, Sergeant Fritchie was loaded onto a, a CH-47 <clears throat> to be recovered. Again, very honorable. The, uh, the CAV squadron had 200 and some people out on the HLZ in honor of him. And, um, and we lifted off and started bringing, bringing our people back. Because all the time, you know, my field grades were still fighting um, in in Kunar, and we had multiple contacts going on there, and um, you know, really, un unfortunately, just a couple of days later, well, the next day, then I had a lieutenant, Lieutenant Ben Hall, killed on the on the thirty first. Um, you know, so it's not like we or anybody can push pause, go do a mission out of sector, come back, recover, unpress un pause, and uh, get on with business. And we we know that in that area. Yeah, and I think I think that's an interesting point because I don't know how many how many commanders, for lack of a, a better term, have the opportunity to to experience that where you are engaged as a battalion commander, sort of in a close fight, almost, but you're also still managing the the larger picture. And I'm I'm curious how you how you thought about balancing those two uh, in retrospect. Yeah. Uh how I thought about it is is we we train for that. Um, my tack and as you mentioned earlier, communications are terrible. Um, so we knew that before we deployed. So we worked um, our systems and and I had purposefully two exceptional field grades and an exceptional op sergeant major. And for people listening, I'll tell you, you know, I, I put a premium for field grades on having a master's degree. And um, when I was had the opportunity to interview people to come in, both were in a master's program. One phenomenal officer told me it was too challenging and he was going to um, quit the program. And I said, well, that's great, but also look for a new job because I'm going to get field grades that have a, a, a master's degree education because I think it makes you, allows you to read, write, and think faster than people without. So that's a plug for, for uh, graduate school and the importance. And, and he got it, and he's a former brigade commander right now. So, um, and he was a phenomenal S3 in this close fight. But the point being is I don't build organizations, um, nor, nor do very many of my peers that are relying on one or 50 people. Um, you know, battalions got to operate. If company commander steps up or troop commander steps up to be the battalion commander, um, that he's going to do the very best he can. But what we do is train, trust, and support those subordinates. And had my field grades 
had catastrophic uh, issues while I was gone, then I'd own those consequences. Um, and that's empowering for them to know that, hey, they are in charge. My XO was uh, then Major Brian Becknow. He was XO, Chief of Staff, Deputy Commander, Commander when I was not in there. Um, the S3 was an outstanding operations officer. Um, Scott Himes and, and the Ops Heart Major, Jeff Koenig, um, would routinely, and people aren't going to like to hear it, but I'd come back in and he'd say, hey, I had to rely heavily on the major and sergeant major in, in clear fires because of this occasion. Not ideal, okay, it's supposed to take a field grade, but he had to make that decision, and when he did, it wasn't willy-nilly, it was to protect troops, and I had to own that. Um, not him, I had to own that. Um, and I think that's kind of, kind of one of the principles that we we seek as we train and we talk about mission command. And as some people have seen, when we create organizations that are reliant on a single personality or the subordinates do not feel like the boss is gonna own the bad consequences of their best decisions, um, you have some indecisive actions that I think ultimately cost people on the ground. And I, I know, and I'm, I'm proud of the fact that my soldiers knew when they were in trouble that the support would come. If, if there were, all we had, for whatever reason, was an RTO in the talk, there would be support coming, coming there to them. So you said a couple times that you felt like this mission, this out-of-sector recovery mission for, for Staff Sergeant Fritchie was the most honorable mission you that you've done. And, and I'm curious kind of how you see it now with the with the benefit of hindsight, sort of what was the impact on on the unit, whether it was the squadron or your unit or yourself, kind of what were the impacts that you saw as a, as a result of that mission and, and how does it stay with you today? Yeah, I, I think my, my framework for service has, has been the Ranger Creed, which was indoctrinated in, into me um, as, as an 18-year-old um, young Ranger. And the point about never um, leaving a fallen comrade is, is very real. We've adopted that into our Soldier's Creed, um, minimized that into the um, Warrior's Creed, and... And I, I think that is is an absolute. Um, and you know, I, I want to caveat. I'm not saying that that the the squadron didn't didn't do that. It just conditions happen. I mean, we've got MIAs from every war we've had. Mm -hmm. um, but to be able to um, help the brigade, help an adjacent unit um, for that unit um, was, was very special. And during our tour, um, enemy touched my soldiers in my AO four different times. Um, one carrying off Josh Brennan when he was wounded, um, and that's when Sal Junta earned his Medal of Honor, running through a near ambush, killing one of the enemy, wounding the other one, recovering his best friend who was still alive but shot seven times. Um, epitomizes that and of course he was awarded the Medal of Honor um, for his actions. Um, I think we ingrained that very deeply um, into our soldiers, into the unit that I commanded um, and there were several times when 
I either had to think through or knew I would risk the large portion, majority of my unit, and obviously myself, to ensure that we did not have somebody unaccounted for. So again, to have the opportunity um, to, it's not about going into another unit sector, but having the opportunity to recover an American and, and bring that person back um, is pretty important and um, special, I guess. And then to carry that further is we did the same for Afghans too, our partners, and you know that, that that's pretty special to them and that breeds those bonds of loyalty deeper than anything because they know that we'll go just as hard for them. And, you know, on a subsequent tour, um, I had a senior leader um, tell me, that I couldn't use U.S. assets to medevac Afghans. And I said, that's absolutely ridiculous. I said, you know, I'm partnered with these people. We're training them to be better leaders. We absolutely have to. And this, at the time, general officer, still serving, pushed back and said, you know, they're going to have to figure it out. And I said, they've been figuring it out for thousands of years. But when helicopters are flying over top of them, they, like our leaders, are going to do everything they can to pull their people off the battlefield. And ultimately, we were able to medevac um, our Afghan partners. And again, it just exponentially increased those bonds of trust where then Afghans routinely, routinely were risking much more of themselves and their units to protect my force. And I think that's what, that's what fellow warriors do, right? Is, do everything we can to protect our, our comrades, our adjacent units, our, our battle buddies, whatever. Um, and then in the event, when events happen and, and they're lost, we recover them. That's what Americans do. Well, sir, I think that's a, as good a place as any to stop. I appreciate you telling us the story. I, I mean, there's, there's a lot there, and, and I agree. I think that's being able to return someone home um, who's made the ultimate sacrifice seems like a a good use of of your time and and effort on a, on any mission so i appreciate you relaying that story to us sir yeah well jake I, i'd just like to finish um prob probably one of my last spears was saying um for the audience here is you know you've had an incredible experience in that area spent time there um, and you're a person that that understands the terrain and what you're doing for future um, soldiers um, capturing these stories with your understanding is going to have a very long-term impact, I think. So I appreciate what you and MWI are doing and uh, wish you the very best. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Thank you again for listening to The Spear. One last thing, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is the best way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. All right, thanks for listening.